0: Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, January 17th, we are studying John chapter two, verses 12 to 25. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. When he finds his father's house being profaned, he cleanses it, and he proclaims that he is the true temple. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dustin Beck. Pastor Beck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Ward Texas. Pastor Beck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. How have you been? I am fantastic. How are you? Oh, just living the dream. That's fantastic. How are things at... Let's talk about Epiphany Bastrop briefly. How oh, are things, going there? things
1: are going well at Epiphany Bastrop. We're uh, just so blessed, uh, so blessed to get to be a part of this brand new ministry uh, coming up on our one year anniversary as a congregation. Uh, still going through a lot of the uh, the chartering processes and all those kinds of things, but uh, things are going really well uh, and the folks there are just wonderful. So uh, if you're in the Bastrop, Texas area, be sure and look us up.
0: God be praised. Indeed. And then, Faith Lutheran Faith Lutheran High School. Are you teaching? I forget. Are you teaching Old Testament or New? Testament
1: We're teaching this New year? Testament this year. Uh, we Fantastic. we swap back and forth uh, for our freshmen and sophomores. So right now we're doing the New Testament, and um, we're just coming back from break, and uh, we're jumping into the Epistles uh, during this spring semester. It's going to be a uh, just a wonderful trip through the through the second half of the New Testament.
0: So that means you've already talked about the gospel according to St. John in the previous semester. So how do you, how do you teach the gospel according to St. John to high school students? Oh,
1: so, we, so the way that we do it is uh, we start off the year by talking about what is a gospel, and we, we talk about you know, what is the Word of God and everything else. Uh, we go through the, the gospel of Mark, because Mark is the shortest gospel. Um, And we can go through the entire thing. Um, And then we do a short unit on comparing Mark to Matthew and Matthew by itself and comparing Mark to Luke and Luke by itself. Um, And then we do a full unit on John. Uh, And You you really need to do a full unit on John because it is just so different. Um, And it's different in a good way. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are uh, referred to as synoptic gospels. They have a similar synopsis or summary. They have a similar outline. Um, And then John really is an outlier. Uh, not an outright liar or something like that, but he's an outlier from the rest, put it that way. Um, So John is written um, about 30 years uh, later than the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John is written um, uh, probably to a different audience. Uh, John is written really and truly to everyone. Um, It's for people who know the story, for people who don't know the story. It it reminds me of that old old song, uh, I Love to Tell the Story. Do you remember that one? I do. I think so, yeah. Um, but so John is sort of just written for everybody. Remember, these things are written that you may believe uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name uh, for the end of the gospel. Uh, so these are written for you, dear listener. Um, so when we talk about John's gospel, we talk about the fact that uh, John includes um, a lot of accounts that are not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, uh, or he puts them, potentially puts them in different places, like Maybe our text today. We'll have to talk about that once we get into it. Um, uh, The voice of John uh, as as narrator uh, comes into the text in the gospel, and we're going to hear that um, in the uh, in the uh, the text that we study today. Um, So that's going to be a thing that we talk about throughout uh, the class when we're talking about John. Um, And then you know we we emphasize in uh, all four of the gospels some of the different major themes uh, that come up throughout the gospels. Uh, But I, I like to think of John. Uh, as a as a thematic masterpiece, uh, that John, uh, you know, of course, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, uh, John writes his gospel, and he just weaves into it um, all of these different um, different motifs, I guess you could say. Uh, so we have the the seven signs, culminating with uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, and then, if you will, the eighth sign, which is Jesus's own resurrection. Uh, you have uh, the I am statements of Jesus that uh, begin uh, in chapter six and then work their way through until we hear uh, about him uh, in the upper room, you know, being uh, the, uh, the way, the truth and the life. Uh, you have all kinds of um, different themes and different uh, foci, not focuses, but foci um, that you can sort of read through the gospel of John. And I, I mean, you could honestly, you could read through it just over and over and over again. Um, and you could pay close attention to where is Jesus when he does this or what festival is about to take place. Cause John places a lot of emphasis on the different uh, festivals of the Jews uh, to sort of mark time throughout the gospel. Uh, so we really get to, we just get to go chapter by chapter uh, in the class. Uh, but I think the kids enjoyed John this year. Um, they, they all seem to have those light bulb moments of like, Oh, this is, this is what this is talking about. So that's, sort of a nutshell version.
0: <laughs> well, and that was a helpful introduction for our conversation today, getting through some of the context. How does this text that we have fit into some of those things that you've been talking about, themes, motifs, uh, maybe a different order as, as we were talking about right. within the Synoptic Gospels? How, how does this text fit into some of that? Right.
1: So uh, a couple of things. So um, right smack dab in the middle, uh, the Jews are going to say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So Jesus um, is going to offer up a sign to them, but it's not going to make sense right there in the text to them, which again is why it's so helpful for John to sort of swoop in as the, um, the eagle-eyed you know, gospel writer, the, the narrator who rescues us and says, oh, he's speaking of the temple of his body. That's what he's talking about here. Um, so we don't actually see a sign taking place in this text, uh, but we hear a reference to it and then to the ultimate sign, which is going to be the resurrection. Um, in terms of the, uh, and, and this is this is probably the the biggest talking point of this text for pastors and theologians and professors and whatnot, um, is if you look at uh, the outline of the four gospels uh, of just uh, chapter by chapter play by play, um, the cleansing of the temple takes place in chapter two in John and in uh, the other three gospels it takes place like almost immediately after the uh, triumphal entry during Holy Week. And so the logical question that that people ask is, so, you know, is John right or are the synoptics right Um, or uh, did the synoptics leave out something or did John leave out something, you know, or, you know, did John intentionally. And this is the one that we were talking right before we came on the air. This is the one that I'm almost um, I'm intrigued enough by it. Uh, that I'll entertain it, but I'm not going to definitively say this is the way you should read John. Um, and that is to say that John is written less from a linear temporal uh, perspective, like like we would tell a story where you're going to tell the story at the beginning, you're going to make your way to the middle, and then ultimately you're going to find your way to the end, hopefully. Um, and instead, what you get is potentially um, a series of uh, accounts that are given, um, as I said a few moments ago for more of a thematic purpose Um, and so less uh, associated with linear time and more like, I mean, have you, there are some, all of the movies that are coming to my mind are movies that, that, you know, are probably not, uh, you know, kid friendly. (laughs) Uh, But like one, you know, there are some movies and I think of like Quentin Tarantino movies and things like that. But um, Mm. there, there are several movies that I've, I've watched, uh, uh, you know, in my younger days, before I was wise and everything else and stopped watching, uh, you know, uh, non-family friendly movies. Uh, I feel like I'm now confessing to you, Pastor Apple. Um, <laughs> you are but forgiven. there are a lot of movies out there that have been written and even, even books, uh, that are written with flashbacks in them, you know, or cut scenes that go back to something else that sort of, now it'll make more sense to you, you know, whenever everything, uh, unfolds, um, but you sort of take it out of its place in time, and you front it back to, you know, uh, almost kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Um, so again, I'm intrigued by the idea, but I don't think we have to come down one way or the other on this. We know that these things happened. Uh, the, I mean, uh, one way of looking at it is to say, you know, Jesus as a as a good faithful Jew would have gone up to the to, uh, to the temple at Jerusalem every Passover, um, and very likely the selling of oxen sheep and pigeons and money changers being there that would have been there every year and so maybe this is something that jesus did you know uh, every year when he got there they're like by the third time you know in his uh, in his public ministry they're like oh it's that guy again let's crucify him hmm. i i don't know that we need to draw the line in the sand one way or the other uh, but again i'm just i'm sort of I'm I'm sort of curious enough about that that I think it's something that we can entertain, and then the question would become, you know, from a from a teaching perspective or from a proclamation perspective, why would this be pulled all the way from Holy Week up into Chapter Two? Um, And I think that that's because this theme. If we look at yet you know yesterday's text uh, where we had uh, Jesus uh, at the wedding at Cana turning water into wine, uh, what do we find? Well, the marriage feast of the Lamb. I mean, that's going to be where Jesus is. And so you juxtapose, you contrast that with now Jesus goes to the temple, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, to the place where the worship of God is supposed to be taking place. And he's like, no, you guys are getting it all wrong. And so he's going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to, um, he's going to actually uh, restore, I guess in a way of speaking, uh, the right worship of God in his temple um, you're going to see the very same thing with the next couple of texts where you have on the one hand Nicodemus at night um, and then the woman at the well, you know, the guy who should understand he's a teacher of Israel and he doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. And this woman who's a Samaritan who, you know, uh, doesn't get anything um, but she, you know, wants this living water and everything else. So we've got a little far afield of the text and we haven't even actually gotten into the text, but you know, all of this is to say is that John is written in a way that is enigmatic. It's beautiful. Um, and it's the kind of thing that uh, when we were both learning Greek, you know, um, what was that, 20 years ago now, Pastor Apple? Something like yeah. that. When we were both learning Greek, uh, when an assignment came up and it was, you know, you know, from John's gospel, I think there was a little, you know, a little um, angel inside of us that rejoiced because John is written on like a third grade reading level uh, in terms of Greek but the depth of the content and the theology of it is the kind of thing that you know you never get tired of
0: yeah that's that's for sure in terms of the some of the thematic connections you know just the fact that jesus is at the temple and he's going to by the end of this text declare himself to be the temple that goes back to john chapter 1 oh, the prologue yeah. where the the word became flesh and dwelt among us and even just the fact that he's as the temple he's going to the temple will be destroyed and he's going to rebuild it. We're talking about his death and resurrection. I was reading a a commentator that pointed out that this is very similar to the way John proclaimed to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Here we have Jesus at the temple, at the Passover, just as John had proclaimed to be the Lamb of God. So Jesus now comes to the temple as the Lamb of God, prefiguring, foreshadowing, proclaiming already that that is in fact what he's going to do. So a lot of thematic connections for sure and, in this text. And I
1: think, just to, just to piggyback off of what you were saying there, um, is that you you almost have to read the entire gospel of John in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Everything makes sense when you understand that, when that is the, the, the key to, uh, to decode what's going on in this gospel. Why does Jesus care about you know, they're selling livestock and, you know, making a little bit of money. Why, you know, all of this is about him Um, be, you know, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They're going to reject him. They're going to throw him out of the city. They're going to put him up on a cross. uh, But to those who did receive him, to those, to you, to me, dear listener, right? Mm-hmm. Um, To us, he has given the right to be the children of God. Um, And all of that is by his death and resurrection. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's. And that probably gets us pretty set for the text, don't you think?
0: Let's go ahead and read. This is John (laughs) chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's our text for today. That's John 2, verses 12 to 25. It's a good one. It's a great one. So, Pastor Beck, there is more there than the cleansing of the temple. Our conversation so far is focused on that. But there are some, what you might think of, transition verses before and after our text. Verse 12 is a, a transition from the previous text the wedding at Cana, and then how he's going to get to Jerusalem eventually. Talk about verse 12 and what Jesus is doing there.
1: Sure. So uh, Capernaum uh, there in Galilee is going to be sort of the, uh, the base of operations for, for Jesus' um, northern kingdom, if you will, uh, ministry. This is uh, the home of uh, Simon Peter and Andrew, James, and John. Um, so this is going to be uh, sort of a base of operations for him. And uh, it's also important to note here who is with him. Ah, that's that brings up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? It could. It could, yeah. Let's not let it. No, I'm, just, right. I'm just kidding. So uh, it says that he's along with his, uh, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Now, um, I know the part that everyone's curious about is uh, his disciples, because it only says so far that he's called a handful of them. So we don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. That's not what everyone's curious about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not. I was curious about that.
1: Well, so we don't know exactly. Um, you know, John is um, in 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 Luke's gospel uh, when he's going to talk about uh, the disciples. He sort of means all of the the crowds that are following Jesus, and then he'll talk. He'll distinguish and talk about the twelve. Um, in in Matthew, he's going to the twelve, or the disciples are going to be mainly the twelve. Um, in Mark, you get a little bit of I mean, the the disciples are usually just the twelve, I, I believe in Mark, but in John. Uh, you kind of get it both ways. It's it's not really um, so. I, I mean, and this is I, I was telling a little bit of a joke here. I mean, his brothers is going to be the part that people's eyes are drawn to. So we don't know exactly if he's called all of his disciples by this point, uh, but that's his disciples who are with him are with him. His mother, obviously, that's Mary. And then right in the middle, you've got his brothers. So this can refer to um, and, and there's a lot of different ways that people will read this. Um, some will read this uh, as uh, you know Joseph's uh, you know uh, children from his previous marriage. I don't know where we read that in. I think that's church tradition. Um, you know uh, maybe these are younger siblings uh, that Mary and Joseph had after jesus uh, Jesus' uh, birth of the Virgin Mary. Um, or you know, I've even heard it said that uh, it refers to uh, his relatives because the word brother. Uh, especially in the ancient Near East, um, it it's sort of a you know it's uh, it's the way that you know some people nowadays will talk about their cousins and maybe it's mm-hmm. actually their you know their their second cousin or it's actually their I, I get confused with all of the <clears throat> the different relations right. and everything like that. Yeah.
0: Sometimes sometimes the word cousins in in modern speaking can just mean relatives of some. Great distance sometimes. Exactly. So sometimes that's the way the word brothers could be used in Greek.
1: And I don't think that we need to come down one way or the other on this. I think that this is uh, this is not going to affect all that much in—well, um, certainly in this account, it's not going to affect all that much. This is more of a—I'll uh, um, I'll be generous and say that people have a pious curiosity about things like this. And they just—they like to ponder and to think about, you know, we we'll, what what does it mean for Jesus to have brothers? Um, which I would just remind everyone that you know, through faith, through our baptism, through the promises of God, we are all uh, brothers and co-heirs alongside Jesus. So, you know, that's uh, that's nothing that I'm gonna um, really even, you know, I don't I don't get caught up on that as a speed bump or anything like that because we have so much more text to talk.
0: That's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, as you said, there are, there is pious curiosity, pious speculation that sometimes gets carried too far. We should acknowledge that. There there are places where that pious speculation goes into, becomes perhaps a matter of dogma that it shouldn't. Yeah. And, and that's, we certainly want to avoid that. Uh, but I, I do think you're wise not to, to go too far into that can of worms that could be opened. Though it is, you know, as, as you were talking, just thinking about his brothers, as it's written here in verse 12, and the way that they come back up in the narrative of, of John's gospel is, is somewhat, it's, it's interesting to me because later in John, we're going to find out that they don't believe in him, right. but they still kind of hang around him a little bit uh, in in a different way than they they seem to hang out with him in the synoptic gospels. You know, there's that, that account in, I think it's in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they're, they're looking for Jesus and they, they think he's crazy and they're trying to get him out of the crowds. yeah. His brothers here are functioning in maybe a, lo- a little bit different of a way. They seem to be hanging out with him a little bit more, at, and this is an early stage, at least in the gospel,
1: mm-hmm.
0: trying to get a feel for who this guy is. And I don't know, it's, it's just a, it'll be interesting to see how the brothers function in the narrative. Um, and we do know that, that later, some of them do come to faith after the resurrection. Especially James. Right, and I believe Jude as well yeah. would, would be another one right. for sure that we would know about. They're they're mentioned in Acts, I think, as well. Anyways, sure, we don't want to get too far down that pious speculation. Uh, it's uh, fun though, isn't but it? Just to notice, that's right, just to notice what's happening here. So he goes down to Capernaum, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, they stay there for a few days. You go down to Capernaum, by the way, because it is down in elevation, generally speaking, but he's going to go up to Jerusalem in verse 13, because that's how you go elevation-wise. So talk about now in verse 13, Jesus' trip to Jerusalem and his purpose in going to the Passover.
1: Sure. So the Passover was one of the uh, the major festivals of the Jews. It was uh, one of the three times a year that uh, Pentecost and Booths uh, were the festivals that you went to the temple, went to Jerusalem, and this was when you did your, uh, your, your, you paid your vows to the temple. You you did your sacrifices that were uh, required of you, um, and so Jesus, as a faithful Jew, he would have gone to the temple um, at these uh, these festivals each year, um, and we we hear about this, you know, um, especially you know back during the season of Christmas, we were hearing about. Uh, Jesus and, uh, you know, the young boy in the temple. And we hear that it was their custom to go to the Passover, you know. And so we're not surprised to see Jesus in Jerusalem this early in John's gospel. Um, Jesus is going just like everyone else was supposed to. Uh, but maybe there's a little bit of irony in the fact that uh, Jesus, who is the temple of God, the, the tabernacling word made flesh, yeah, who is uh, God's own presence here for us, um he goes to the temple uh and just like John 1 put it you know he came to his own and his own did not receive him we're going to see a picture of that as he enters into the temple here um because he is the one who should be the focus the center of attention well he's going to be the center of attention but not for the right reasons <laughs>
0: well or not the right reasons that everyone else wants exactly. to, perhaps right he's he's got the right reasons as yeah, we will see yeah
1: but he gets he gets the attention just not Maybe the kind of attention that he is right. is owed.
0: All right. So the Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he, he goes to the temple. Talk about what he finds there in verse 14.
1: Yeah. So when he gets in there, uh, he finds uh, that there are people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And then, of course, there are money changers. And I did a little bit of, uh, of reading through, you know, some commentaries and things. And apparently this was uh, sort of a bustling industry uh, in Jerusalem, right outside of the temple. Uh, where, you know, let's say that you uh, had come from, uh, you know, from out of town. Uh, you had come from, uh, I don't know, like Galilee, Capernaum, somewhere like that. Um, and maybe, you know, you had uh, some, some sheep or some oxen and things, uh, and you brought those with you uh, down to the temple. Uh, well, very frequently, uh, the uh, priests who were examining your sacrifice, uh, your offering, uh, they would look at it and they would say, oh, no, we can't accept this one. it has a blemish. It's got a problem. You know, you can only offer unblemished animals uh, because, you know, we only offer the best stuff for God in terms of sacrifices. Um, but I tell you what, you can go right over there and that guy will sell you an ox and he'll make you a really good deal on it. Um, and so then you'd go over and, you know, there's you can kind of see where I'm going with this. Uh, there was some uh, some, you know, winking and nodding and, you know, greasing elbows and palms and whatever, um, because. They would sell the, you know, sell an ox to the individual and they'd bring it back over and, you know, they'd say, well, this one, you know, this one, you know, passes muster will, uh, will absolutely sacrifice that thing. And, uh, even if it wasn't a perfect ox, uh, was some of the stuff that I was reading was like, yeah, they would overlook stuff for their own stock. Uh, but, uh, you have the money changers there, of course, because, um, you know, Roman coins were, uh, forbidden, Uh, for use in the temple. And so you had people that were selling, uh, you know, basically selling shekels uh, to, uh, to the worshipers so that they could, oh, you know, we don't want to pollute with this pagan, you know, money. um, So we'll sell you our own coins. Um, And they did that at something of a markup rate because, you know, they got to eat too. Uh, But it winds up just money is being made hand over fist. And it's, uh, it's a really uh, interesting economics lesson. Uh, but it's not a very good um, theology department uh, lesson in terms of uh, the right worship of God. So that's what Jesus walks in and finds. And then he sort of, I mean, I'm sure that you have seen uh, the memes, Pastor Apple, that say uh, anytime someone asks you, what would Jesus <laughs> do? Remember yeah. that twisting together a whip of cords and, uh, and, and driving folks out of the room uh, is within the realm of possibility.
0: Yes, I have seen that. It's a good so is, one. So is taking a nap in a boat. So is another. taking
1: a nap in a boat. And have you seen the one uh, that's the, uh, um, the living room with the uh, Monopoly board that's been overturned and there's Monopoly <laughs> money all over the place? That one also ties into this one and says, you, you know, Jesus... Um, when when they were, you know, cooking the books or, or whatever, uh, overturning the tables. Yes.
0: Okay. All of those are, are potential options. I think Because so. that, is, that is what we see Jesus actually do here. Yes. Let, let's talk more about why he does that and how he goes about it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're talking about John chapter two this morning with Pastor Dustin Beck. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 17th. We're studying John chapter 2 verses 12 to 25 with Pastor Dustin Beck. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, prior to the break, you were reminding us that you do teach high school New Testament. And so you were reminding us some memes that <laughs> tell us about how Jesus did in fact do something that, that most people probably aren't thinking about when you see those letters, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Most of the time, they're probably not thinking about this action. And yet, that is something that he does. He drives out all of these people from the temple by making a whip of cords. Talk about what Jesus does here and why he does it.
1: We have a perfect example of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, don't we? Hmm. Yeah, Something like he's, that. He's so so peaceful and calm and everything else. I think Jesus uh we we get to see a little bit of his uh, his righteous indignation. Jesus mm-hmm. um is he's allowed uh to be uh to be angry towards sin. Uh, and I think that um this is a this is a hard thing for a lot of us uh to to see because um there are times when I see the kinds of things that some churches or you know uh, people who should know better uh, I see the kinds of things that that people are doing, and I just say, um, like, How, wh- what are you thinking? You know, and I, I, I just the thoughts that go through my head are are like, oh, I, I, you know, I this is if if ever there were a moment when I should twist together a whip of cords, you know, uh, speaking of course, um, you know, uh, figuratively. Usually, <laughs> this kind of thing happens on uh, on social media. So that's why, you know, I have a little reminder to myself, you know, don't do the whip of cords thing, you know, anytime you're on social media ever, mainly because, you know, you and I are not Jesus. And so we don't get to do those kinds of things. Um, I I think that there is a place for us to say uh, that something is wrong or bad or or, or less helpful, but we need to uh, do our best to explain these things with love. Jesus is is righteously uh, indignant uh, towards this situation because he sees uh, that they have turned um, a house of worship into a house of trade. Those are the words that he uses. Um, he says um, that these things should not be uh, like this. Uh, this is a place where people should come and they should worship. And, and this takes us back to uh, what is in the sacrificial system and the Levitical code and all of these things. What were those ever even really all about. They were about Jesus. They were about the fact that there is this sacrifice that is coming uh, that will take away all of your sins. Remember, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God, uh, in between the lines there in the text, he killed some animals to pr- uh, procure skins, to clothe, to cover um, Adam and Eve's shameful sin. And, um, Jesus is coming to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily, as Paul talks about in Colossians one. Like Jesus has come uh, to be the, the 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 Word of God, the image of God, uh, who has been has been made flesh, has taken on flesh. He tabernacles, he dwells with us, and he's standing right here in front of them, uh, and. And they just don't see it because all that they want to see um, are these these shadowy, veiled images of what he is. They want to look at these things and say these are the main things. It's all about having the right sheep, oxen, pigeons, you know, the right coins, all of these kind of things. Um, and so Jesus just doesn't have any use for that kind of idolatry. He's he's going to just squash it. He's going to just you know say this gets you know, zero stars, you know, no, no, you're, you're not yeah. doing the right thing. It's all of that is passing away. All of that is being torn down and what's going to be left is, well, him, hmm. right? So,
0: so yeah, go ahead. with, with this text, I mean, I remember growing up, I would, I would see at church, you know, they would take the offering out of the sanctuary and it would be counted elsewhere. And, yeah. and like, that was one thing that I was like, oh, well, they, they must do that because of this text. And I think that's probably true in many Christian congregations that money is generally not counted inside the sanctuary or maybe not even on a Sunday morning out of a respect for, I think, what comes from from this event in Jesus' life. And yet it it seems like there's got to be more than just sort of that outward action going on, that if all of, because this was my understanding is this was happening in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Right. So not the the most holy part of the temple, as you you know you weren't all the way in the Holy of Holies, certainly, and not yeah. even all that far in. It just it seems to me that it's more than just, hey, this is happening in the temple. You need to do it outside the doors, uh-huh. that there's something deeper here. What's the what is the takeaway besides maybe not counting offerings in the church building or in the sanctuary? What's the how do we how do we apply this? What's what is what should we get from
1: it? You see, Pastor Apple, when you said that uh, you know when you have memories all the way back to when you were a kid, what I was thinking you were going to say was about people like selling <laughs> Girl Scout cookies and selling <laughs> Boy Scouts popcorn and selling this and that. You know, that was where I thought you were going, but. Um, <laughs> which, again, generally, talk about that generally I've, it's been my practice that we don't really do that in the sanctuary. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. okay with it in the narthex. I'm okay with it, it which I guess would be sort of the temple of, or the, uh, the court of the Gentiles, you know, the outer court. You know, I, I don't know. I don't come down too hard on, on things like that because those aren't trying to be a spiritual thing. Right. The problem here is uh, that these people believe that what they are doing is their worship. They are, you know, worshiping God uh, by bringing this animal uh, or, you know, by uh, not even bringing the animal, but just bringing the money, you know, and then, you know, exchanging money and, and this and that. And yeah, that guy's taking his cut. He's over here lining his pockets and, you know, getting wealthy off of this kind of stuff. And then. You know, you've got these these animals that are being, uh, you know, they're they're being bought and sold and everything else, and they you almost got kind of a a, a market over here uh, that's going on, a Herod's bazaar, I think it's called. You got all these things that are going on, um, and the people really think that this is a part of their worship towards God, that this is what is uh, is well pleasing towards God. Um, which I love uh, John gives such a great uh, uh, Jesus in John gives such a great definition for worship. Right. When he uh, uh, in John six, when he's talking about um, you know uh, yeah. the, what is the work uh, that God would, would have us do, you know, uh, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Right. It all boils down to knowing who Jesus is. And that's such a great text. Um, all of John is a great text, but right here, I think what we see from their actions and from their activities, uh, is we see that they do have a spiritual problem. The spiritual problem is they're so bogged down uh, in the doing things according to what the priests are telling them, doing things according to the system that has been put in place, that they're actually not experiencing um, the fact that God Himself has shown up in His temple. Right? That's Amen. I mean, how many times has has somebody asked you, you know, or have you seen on social media in different places? You know, what what would the church do if Jesus actually showed up? How How would right. how would you respond if Jesus was there? Um, and, and I always have that. I try not to be snarky, Pastor Apple. I really do. I
0: know you try really hard. You do. But
1: I, I always just like to say at our church, Jesus does show up. Yeah. Right. He is present where two or three are gathered in his name. Uh, and then what's more is he says, listen up, guys. This is my body. Take and eat this this cup is the New Testament. It is my blood shed for you. Right? Jesus is here for His people. Um, that's at least that's what we teach at our church. I know that's what you teach yeah. at yours. Um, and the people are completely missing the fact that you know what? What would you do if if God actually showed up to church today? He's here, and they're so con- you know concerned with making money or making sure that their investment is right um, that they just they completely miss it. I think that's really what's right. going on at the heart of this text.
0: Sure. And so there's there's probably very good reasons that you don't sell Girl Scout cookies in the sanctuary or count the money in the sanctuary. Yeah. There's, there's very important reasons to that. But there's more happening in this text than just get the money out of the sanctuary. Right. Rather, it's a misunderstanding of worship, kind of like what the prophet Isaiah and, and many prophets preach. But Isaiah particularly comes to mind. Jesus quotes him in the Gospels where, where Isaiah says, you know, these people they draw near with their mouth they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me Exactly that's that's what's going on here in in John chapter 2 that Jesus drives this out so that they would forsake this idolatry and turn back to him as the one who will be the true sacrifice for the sins of the world the lamb of god has come now he is here so pay attention to him So Jesus drives them out And then in verse 17 we get a comment from john the evangelist you mentioned that he often inserts you know his his narration here and we get some there in verse 17 his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me talk about this old testament citation that his disciples remember
1: yeah yeah it's it's this quote from psalm 69 verse 9 um and this is you know basically i love this because we don't know if this is you know in the moment his disciples right. remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." Like, oh, you remember that one time in the Psalms where it says this, or if this is something they reflected on after, I tend to think that this is probably something they reflected on after, because, yeah. of course, like I mentioned in the uh, in the opening uh, remarks, uh, you know, John's Gospel is written, you know, I mean, maybe as late as you know, as, as the late eighties, maybe as as late as ninety AD. So, I mean, this is a full 60 years after this has taken place. And John is now, by this time, he has searched the Old Testament scriptures over and over and over again. And he's preached and he's proclaimed now for 60 years. Um, and he's you know very likely the last of the apostles, the only one left. And so he's getting his uh, account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus there on the page. Um, but I, I think that he uses, uh, of course, we always, always got to remind you. By the influence of the Holy Spirit, these are not just John's words; uh, these are the words uh, that the Holy Spirit has given to the Psalmist and to John, so and and ultimately to us, so that we would be uh, we would be uh, enlightened by them and we would be um, edified by them. Uh, but yes, this zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, the fact that that we see uh, this this reference back to the Old Testament, where um, you have uh, David, who is Sort of up to his neck in trouble in Psalm sixty nine, uh, right? Uh, but he he loves the idea of God's house. He he wants to to drive away his enemies so that uh, the reproach of uh, of of those who uh, would reproach God um, now it's fallen on me. Uh, but he says, listen, you know, um, my prayer is to you, O Lord. He says. Uh, at an acceptable time. Oh God, this is verse 13 in Psalm 69. And the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness, deliver me from sinking further. Uh, so he has this, this, uh, this wonderful prayer where he's talking about, yes, I still love your house. And remember David's the one who had wanted to build a house for God. And then God said, no, I'll build a house for you. Um, so there's all all, uh, this extra layer to that onion. Right, um, which is just beautiful. That's a reference to the movie Shrek, everyone who's paying attention at home. Sorry. <laughs> um, but there's this beautiful layering here of, you know, David's son and David's Lord who is here um, now surrounded by people who are, I mean, eventually they're going to be the ones who will destroy that temple. They're going to destroy him, mm-hmm. tear him down. Um, he's going to be up to his neck in trouble, and yet he's going to still call upon God. He's still going to um, cry out to God that God would answer his prayer, um, and God does in the resurrection. So yeah,
0: mm, that was a, yeah, a layer well, that I
1: hadn't even considered really. <laughs>
0: well, and I'm just looking you know, at Psalm 69 now, verse 9, yeah. that is quoted here in John 2. The rest of verse 9 states, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, which yeah. I mean, I think really ties in very nicely with what happens later in this in this text where Jesus says, destroy this temple. They, they are going to destroy this temple. Those who, who have reproached the Lord, those reproaches now fall upon Jesus in his crucifixion.
1: And it starts with the reproaches of those who reproach you. So they are reproaching, they are speaking ill of, they are, you know, they're slandering God by their actions here, uh, by their, their idolatry at the temple, you know, and now, yeah, it's going to fall on Jesus.
0: I, mm, I, I yeah. think it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, good. So we got the quote from Psalm 69. His disciples remember this. I think I think you're probably right that it's something they remember later, kind of like John will tell them they remembered these things after, tell us later that he, they remembered these things after he was raised from the dead. So this is Jesus in his righteous indignation, not necessarily an example for us all the time because <laughs> the scriptures do warn against our anger and the way that it tends us towards sin. There is a a moment certainly that we would see something evil and how do I say this? And, and be rightly dismayed about it. Be angry and, and do not sin. Angry, right? Yeah. Be angry uh, be and angry, do, not do not sin. But do not sin. Yeah. And that's that do not sin part is where we often stumble. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's where we certainly want to be careful here in our own anger that it doesn't lead us towards sin and that we repent as necessary. When in doubt, repent. That was, I think, good advice given to me once by a, a pastor. So always. When in doubt, repent. Very good. So the Jews then they respond to this. You know, someone comes into the temple and starts throwing over tables and making a whip. You're gonna want to know who does this, this guy I think he is. The way they ask it, though, is is very Johannine is yes. to use that. <laughs> what sign do you show us for doing these things? Talk about the sign they're asking for.
1: Well, Paul talked about it like this. He said, Jews demand signs, right? Greeks seek after wisdom, uh, but we preach Christ crucified. Um, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. Um, but for us, it's the wisdom, it's the power of God. Uh, so this is this is sort of the way that they're going to set this up. And I, I think that um, that John is, again, he's being very thematic in the the way that he chooses to emphasize uh, words like sign. Um so when he when he asks this question, our our memory goes back to the wedding at Cana, this the first of his signs he did at Cana in Galilee, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory to them. So um when we see that, we're like, oh, we're supposed to look back to that. And then also, you know, we, we look forward to the greatest sign ever of the resurrection. Um so this is sort of one of those you know, uh, a hat tip. This is sort of a, like uh, a wink, wink, uh, nudge, nudge, uh, in John's gospel, but they're asking for a sign. They're asking, uh, show us why, uh, you should, why you should have been allowed to do this kind of a thing. Like, uh, not just tell us, but they're asking him to actually demonstrate, um, you know, who do you think you are? Show us who right. you are
0: right and you know so they ask for a sign and as you said that does recall the previous text but it's striking that jesus doesn't do something that i mean when you go back to to john 2 1 to 11 certainly we know that it's more than a magic parlor trick exactly. or something like that but it could be co- misconstrued as something like that and so jesus doesn't do anything like that but he goes right to the heart of the matter And he answers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And I really think that this is the the key to this whole text. Uh, Talk about Jesus' answer.
1: Yeah, this is the the sign to which all the other signs will point. Okay? So, um, as we said earlier, all of John's gospel is about the death and the resurrection of the incarnate word of God. Okay? All of it. Um, And so... When you see him say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, um, that is the sign uh, that we should always be focused on. That is the sign uh, that that makes everything about John's gospel, everything about the life of Jesus, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, that's what makes all of that make sense. Apart from the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, he's a good teacher, but nothing more. Um, he does miracles but nothing more uh, but when he dies and rises again claiming to be the son of god um, in that death and resurrection we see that his words are confirmed we see that he has spoken the truth um, and we see that uh you know just as, as you referenced earlier in isaiah these people uh, draw near to me with their lips uh in worship but their hearts are far from me uh, we see that when you start peeling away um you know the, the ox and the sheep, the pigeons and money changers, even the temple itself, um, that what are you left with? What is the main thing? It's Jesus. It's mm. the word made flesh. It's, it's always been all about him. Um, and so this is just Jesus sort of getting right to the heart of the issue um, and inviting them to uh, peel away all of this stuff. And let's just talk about the big stuff. Let's just talk about my death, my resurrection for you.
0: And it's striking to me how consistent Jesus is with the, the death and resurrection motif when it comes to the sign. I yeah. think it, in Matthew, when he's asked for a sign, he gives them the sign of Jonah yeah, and talks exactly. about the three days. You know, I mean, and so here again, in, in a different context, different setting, he's still pointing to that sign as this is what you have to see. That's what you have to pay attention to. That's where everything becomes clear and you can truly know who Jesus is. And and in this context, to know who Jesus is, he is the temple, the place where God dwells among his people. Now, they don't get it at the moment. The the Jews, I mean, verse 20, tell, well, take us into the misunderstanding and then yeah. the right understanding that John tells us.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that this, you know, you could almost call verse 19, you could say that this is sort of a riddle, hmm. right? That Jesus is saying something that's, I mean, if you don't know the rest of the story, if you don't know what what is going on, if you don't know that Jesus is going to die and rise again, um, and if you know, especially if you don't get verse twenty-one and following, you know, twenty-two as well, um, this sounds like the craziest thing you've ever heard. It's it's completely, you know, it, it sounds crazy. I mean, this is this is a huge temple. I mean, it's one of the wonders of the world. It's this great building with courtyards and everything else. Um, and you know he says, you know, I've, I've driven out all of these animals and money changers. And they're like, Hey, you know, I mean, show us who you think you are. And he's like, tear down this place. And then three days I'll build it back up again. Well, what does that even mean? Why would, why do you want us to tear something down so that you can build it up again? What, what is this about Jesus? So you can, you almost have to empathize with him and just say, yeah, I can see why it doesn't make any sense to them. And so they respond in verse 20, uh, Excuse us it has taken 46 years to build this <laughs> temple and will you raise it up in 3 days this is sort of like when Jesus says uh, that uh, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and he, they're like um you're barely 30 and Abraham's been gone for a while you know and it's like no you guys just you're not you're not picking up what I'm laying down kind of a right. deal <laughs> right uh, yeah. so yeah they have this uh, and i mean you know next chapter we're going to very famously have Nicodemus asking questions mm. about, uh, you know, crawling into his mother's womb uh, as an old man and being born again. And I don't think mm. you're picking up on what Jesus is, yeah. is delivering here to you. Uh, so their eyes are, are blinded, you know, which, again, uh, we talk about the themes in John's mm-hmm. gospel, seeing and not seeing. When people see in John's gospel, generally speaking, he's talking about they believe. Mm. Right. And this, is, this comes out in John 9 with the man born blind. And especially the end of that chapter where you have the Pharisees uh, and they're like, uh, you know, so are we blind then because we don't believe in you kind of? And he goes, you know, if you could see, you know, then these sins wouldn't be held against you. Oh, man. Oh, we're getting all over the place in John. But that's the way that John works. So these people don't have the eyes of faith to see what's going on here when Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. And and I love in, in, in verse 21. When John, the narrator, steps back in and says when he, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, right? What a beautiful turn of phrase. Uh, And that just, again, that takes us right back into chapter one, that the word became flesh, that the word tabernacled among us, that the word dwelt among us, that the word set up his tent here with us, his dwelling place, so that God's own presence in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, that that word who is God and who is the light shining in the darkness, which the darkness can't overcome that light word person, Jesus, (laughs) that he is here with us. That that is what it means for Jesus to be in the temple on that day um, that he has set up uh, his temple for these people. Yes, they will destroy it. They're going to tear it down, but in three days, you know, he's going to be risen forever, uh, which is the hope of all all of humanity.
0: Yeah. And so his disciples remember that after he's been raised from the dead, after that they have seen this sign, they believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. In verses twenty three to twenty five, we get another one of these little transitional moments, or at least a more information about what was happening there in Jerusalem while Jesus was at the Passover feast. We've got about three minutes left here, Pastor Beck. Oh, Take us into these these I know, these last few verses that sometimes get overlooked in the midst of all the commotion and, and the wonderful things Jesus says. What's happening in those last couple of verses? Oh,
1: I just wanted to comment real quick, and I only got three minutes. Uh, I think verse 22, is that the first mention of the resurrection in John's gospel?
0: Oh, I think you're right. I think it is. At least officially. I think it is. Well, I get the distinction of being
1: the first to talk about the resurrection. No, I'm sure everybody else has talked about it too. Yeah, so uh, first reference to the uh, uh, resurrection in verse 22. That's so cool that John just pulls that all the way back to the beginning. There you go. Uh, verse 23 to 25, um, yeah, it's going to—this is the note that we're going to leave on today. And it all, honestly is sort of a gut check. It's sort of a—this uh, this verse, for me, it pierces deeper than just the flesh. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knows what is in a man. Jesus knows our hearts. Um, he did all the way back in John chapter two, and he does today. And so for us, it's important to realize that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, that he knows exactly what he's getting into because he is God. He's God in the flesh for us. And so Jesus takes um, this Godness. Jesus takes himself, and he doesn't entrust himself to their care or anything like that, but he is going to die for them. That's where he's going to destroy this temple or allow them to destroy this temple. Tear it up, y'all. Um, you know, do what you're going to do with it because that third day will always bring resurrection uh, when you're in Christ. Uh, and so for us, I think there's great hope uh, in the fact that, uh, yes, God still knows us. God knows our frailties. God knows our shortcomings, uh, as we've talked about uh, already uh zeal sometimes overcomes us uh and it usually overcomes us and it manifests itself in sin and so best place to be is that god knows us so we repent he forgives us and then he restores us again all the time uh jesus continues to dwell with us uh, as the temple the word the light uh god himself with us forever and
0: i think that's about all we got to say all,
1: all the time that we got today right
0: sounds great pastor beck yes, pastor sir? dustin beck is pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas, helping us today with John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. Pastor Beck, thanks for being our guest today.
1: My pleasure, Pastor Apple. God bless you.
0: Jesus Christ is the temple, the place where God dwells among us. He has been crucified and raised for us sinners to give us his light and life. Rejoice and be glad, dear Christians. Jesus is your Savior. I am your host here on Sharper Iron pastor timothy apple of faith lutheran church in godfrey illinois if you have any questions about the gospel according to saint john send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org it's always a pleasure to hear from you thanks for spending the morning with us talk to you again tomorrow